is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Welcome to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek, Managing Editor of the Catholic Review. October 5th marks the feast of Blessed Francis Xavier Silos, a redemptorist missionary who ministered in the Archdiocese of Baltimore at parishes including St. Alphonsus Liguri in Baltimore, St. Mary in Annapolis, and Saints Peter and Paul in Cumberland. Blessed Silos came to the United States in the 19th century from Bavaria to minister to German immigrants. He also worked with young men in formation to become redemptorist priests. Renowned for his pastoral skills in the confessional, his good sense of humor, and his deep faith, Blessed Silos ministered to victims of the yellow fever epidemic in New Orleans before dying of the disease himself. Here to talk about the amazing life of Blessed Silos is Redemptorist Father Richard Baver, Executive Director of the National Shrine of Blessed Francis Xavier Silos in New Orleans, and the author of a newly released book about Blessed Silos called Zealous Missionary, from the perspective of Blessed Francis Xavier Silos. We spoke with Father Baver via phone. Father Richard Baver, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. I'm very pleased to be here with you. Thank you. Blessed Francis Xavier Silos is such a beloved figure here in the Archdiocese of Baltimore with his many connections in Baltimore and Annapolis and out west in, in Cumberland. Um, could you tell us a little bit about his upbringing in Bavaria, a little bit about his background and, and why he wanted to become a priest and a redemptorist? Sure. Uh, he uh, grew up in a, it's a really beautiful little Alpine uh, town called Fusen, and uh, it's in the foothills of the Alps. It was a very lovely town, and uh, almost everyone was Catholic. He grew up in a very Catholic family. And uh, so he was imbued with it and went to the uh, local school, like everyone else, and then on to another school called the Gymnasium in Augsburg, and then on to the University of Munich. It was during this time that he thought about being a priest, but didn't decide to do it, actually, until he was finished with uh, two years of philosophy at the uh, University of Munich, and then he decided, yes, this is for sure what I want to do. But he didn't just decide to be a priest because he could have been a a priest in the Diocese of Augsburg if he wanted, but he wanted to imitate his uh, patron saint, who was, of course, St. Francis Xavier, a great missionary, and he decided he wanted to follow that example. And uh, he knew that at at that time there were floods of German immigrants pouring into the United States and uh, that the church in the United States was very stressed because the priest in the United States did not speak German. And so the uh, redemptorists were there and they came, all of them came out of the, uh, the, what was called the Transalpine province, which was the north of the Alps. So they spoke German and took care of them. And Blessed Silas applied to the redemptorists because he wanted to be a missionary and he figured he could serve the immigrants that came to the United States and eventually he was accepted, 
and finished his theological education and his novitiate to become a professed redemptorist in Baltimore. At, uh, at, at that time, we had the St. John's Parish, which uh, is no longer there. Mm-hmm. And then he actually served uh, at St. Alphonsus, which is still in existence today, still uh, going strong. What, what, what was some of his right. ministry there at St. Alphonsus? Well, he uh, finished his training and was ordained, <clears throat> and uh, and then he stayed a year in in, um, in Baltimore at St. James Church, different church. But uh, he uh, re- was returned uh, by assignment to Baltimore in 1854, and uh, he was assigned there because the uh, election of the provincial of the Redemptorists took place, and. Uh, one of the men from Baltimore was uh, elected, and so Silas was sent there to become the uh, pastor and the uh, rector, and uh, he took the place of the uh, the provincial head head as in that position, and he was also serving as a, uh, what we would call the second consultant. So there's a team of three that make up what we call the ordinary provincial consul. He was the second consultant and uh, the pastor of St. Alphonsus. And he had quite the reputation, uh, especially in the confessional, a good way about treating people in the confessional. That's right. That's right. He, he, was very, uh, he was very much beloved, and uh, he was very much beloved for the spiritual advice that he gave people. Uh, and they always said his confessional lines were always huge, and uh, he also saw people individually and served as a, a spiritual director to many people by correspondence and uh, continued that even after, for instance, he developed some relationships in Baltimore and continued them when he moved on to the other uh, parishes in Cumberland and in Annapolis. So he he got quite a connection with uh, Baltimore. And uh, I know one time he was invited to come back and to uh, lay the foundation stone for St. Michael's Church and preached at Christmas Mass, and it was a great uh, outpouring of affection for him from the people of the parish. So he was very much beloved, yes. What was his connection to St. John Newman? St. John Newman was, of course, another redemptorist, and uh, the connection really grew because after one year in Baltimore as a parish priest, he was assigned to Pittsburgh, and in Pittsburgh, St. John Newman was the pastor and uh, he became the associate pastor, and uh, they actually got to know each other very, very well. He he says St. John Newman treated him as a son, and he certainly mentored him in the beginning of his ministry, and that was very important to him. And in fact, they uh, were very close. They, they shared the same bedroom uh, with only a curtain hanging between their beds to give them some kind of privacy. So you can imagine with that kind of a closeness and also working so much together and praying together, they developed a very a deep relationship. After uh, St. John Newman was transferred from Pittsburgh and moved on, uh, he became eventually, John Newman became what we call the vice provincial of the uh, Redemptorist in charge of all the Redemptorists in America. And here he goes and appoints Blessed Silos as the master of novices. And he was only a few years, ordained a few years a redemptress, but obviously John Newman thought very highly of him to uh, appoint him to that position 
and he felt that, I guess, Silas was the one who should uh, form the foundation of the future Redemptorist in America. And that, that kind of work would have been taken up at St. Peter and Paul in Cumberland? That would be that would be later, and it was another thing that, uh, yeah. In, in St. Peter and Paul, when he went to uh, Cumberland at St. Peter and Paul Parish, he was what they call the prefect of students. So he wasn't the novice master there. He was in charge of all the redemptorist students still who had already made vows and were redemptorists, but still had studies to uh, perform before they could be ordained a priest. And so okay. he was at that time the prefect of students. What was he like in that role? The students loved him, and, and he had a very um, he had a very um, serious uh, opinion of how the students should be formed. So he uh, was not just sitting there and giving them lectures, but he he accompanied them. He often accompanied them on on trips and uh, you know outings, and he loved to go on outings. So he went with them, and often the informal conversations were also uh, very important to the students and. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, the various uh, activities he did and the specific uh, conferences, etc., which he gave them along in the course of their formation. But uh, over the years, you know, they became very close to uh, to Blessed Silos, and, and many of them kept that relationship uh, long after they were ordained priests and sent all over the place. And, and during the Civil War years, he also did some interventions with the American government. Uh, could you talk about that? A little bit sure he was uh he was at that time in annapolis and uh, they um instituted while well, he was in annapolis in 1863 when the civil war was raging they uh, instituted the draft and anyone could be drafted you know between the ages of like I, i'm not positive the number right now 18 and 45 so all of the students were eligible to be drafted and even Blessed Silas himself was eligible to be uh, drafted because he was still the, under the age. And so he decided he, he decided he has to do something about it. So he went to Washington. And I guess in those days, you just went up to the, the White House and knocked on the door and went in. And, and he went in and talked to President Lincoln. He called him Father Abraham and... Father Abraham, he said, was extremely gracious to him, and uh, he said he can't do anything official to uh, guarantee that the men would not be drafted. But he said, to tell, he told Blessed Silas, don't worry about it too much, and uh, none of them were drafted. So uh, I don't know if there was any real intervention on, on the part of the president, or it was just luck. He, I, he I thought that uh, but um, President Lincoln was extremely gracious, and he was pleased with him. But he didn't like the Secretary of War, and that was Stanton. And uh, he even said if they ever fe uh, propose a feast in the church for rough characters, Stanton would get an octave because he was so rough. <laughs> in your book, you uh, use a lot of the actual writings of Blessed Silos, and, and you write it the entire book's written in in the first person. Um, in your research, what what would you say the writings of Blessed Silos reveal about the kind of man he was? His writings reveal that he was a very caring person, and he reached out to so many people that he had made contact with over the years who wrote to him about their 
spiritual lives and how they were to live them. Uh, they were both uh, religious and uh, lay people. And uh, he wrote so many letters that when he was uh, assigned for one year to Detroit, the uh, rector of the community told him not to write so many letters anymore. And uh, so he was that way. But also the constant, uh, the constant flow of people that came to him in the confessional and in the uh, testimonies that were put together after his death concerning his holiness, uh, the people said he seemed to be able to understand them uh, completely. And he himself says, uh, I will always receive you with absolute gentleness. And he did. And he was never in a hurry. He never uh, made the people get in and out even though he had a long line, he just took his time. And the people uh, greatly appreciated him as a confessor and a spiritual director for those reasons. Well, our guest today is Redemptorist Father Richard Faber. He's the author of a new book called Zealous Missionary from the Perspective of Blessed Francis Xavier Silas. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the, the very heroic death of Blessed Silos, and then also take a look at where his canonization cause stands. I'm George Matisek. You're listening to Catholic Review Radio. We'll be back in a moment. Archdiocese of Baltimore makes the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org accountability. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. During his homily for the National Migration Week Mass September 25th, Archbishop William E. Lorry remembered his Sicilian grandfather, who came to the United States at a time many protested the arrival of Southern Europeans. Quote, Many of today's immigrants work very hard, no less than my grandpa, looking for a better life for his family, said Archbishop Loring, speaking at the Cathedral of Mary Our Queen, a building made possible by a bequest from Irish immigrant Thomas J. O'Neill. Archbishop Loring noted that each person coming to American borders bears God's image and is beloved in his sight. National Migration Week 2021 was observed September 20 through 26 and coincides with the Vatican's celebration of the World Day of Migrants and Refugees, which always falls on the last Sunday of September. According to the American Immigration Council, one in seven Maryland residents is an immigrant and the top country of origin is El Salvador. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. Monsignor Thomas J. Donnellan, Jr., founding pastor of the Catholic Community of St. Francis Xavier in Hunt Valley and respected leader in pastoral planning in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, died September 24th at St. Martin's Home for the Aged in Catonsville. He was 91. Monsignor Donnellan's long tenure at St. Francis Xavier began in 1988 when he was appointed coordinator of the new Independent Mission of Hunt Valley, which held weekend masses at the Hunt Valley Inn. His assignment was to develop the mission into a full parish, filling a need due to the explosive growth in northern Baltimore County. Monsignor Donlan led the parish from its birth as a hotel mass station 
through its incorporation as a parish in May 1992 and on to the building and relocation of the parish to its current home at Serenity Farms on Cuba Road in January 1998. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm Kevin Parks. Every child enters the world with limitless potential. Potential of mind. Potential of body. Potential of spirit. If there was only a place where that potential could be nurtured and challenged every day, where the limits of greatness, once unseen, could now be within reach. Catholic Schools Rise Above. With inviting surroundings, complete independence, and an unmatched quality of life, Mercy Ridge is the unparalleled choice for your retirement lifestyle. It's a way of living that promotes an active, healthier life. Located in Timonium, Maryland, Mercy Ridge Continuing Care Retirement Community features a beautifully landscaped 32-acre campus. The grounds, dining, and recreational amenities and residences are designed to provide a gracious lifestyle and a variety of exciting activities. Visit MercyRidge.com. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Welcome back to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek. Our guest today is Redemptorist Father Richard Baber. He's the author of a new book called Zealous Missionary from the Perspective of Blessed Francis Xavier Silos. Father Baber, could you tell us about the, the death of Blessed Silos? It, it was a really heroic way for him to. to to give his life. Could you tell our listeners about that? Well, the last assignment that Blessed Silos received was down to uh, New Orleans. And New Orleans was not a place that a lot of people, uh, uh, a lot of the redemptorists at least wanted to go to because it was known for so many uh, fevers and, uh, you know, there were a lot of swamps around, etc. But Silos really enjoyed it. But while he was down here, the yellow fever was uh, raging, and he, uh, among the other uh, confreres stationed in the parishes, uh, served the uh, people by going to their house, of course, and and, uh, and ministering to the dying especially. Eventually, uh, Blessed Silos himself contracted the disease and uh, was put to bed, and uh, they thought that it would heal. It's kind of like the modern COVID, but uh, his uh, yellow fever continued to increase, and uh, it eventually claimed his life. Uh, he was very much of an inspiration as he was dying to his confreres, uh, who were constantly at his side, uh, praying with him and for him. And uh, it was a heroic death. And then he was put in the church immediately. Of course, that's where they did it, you know, um, for a wake just the night he died in the evening about five and uh, then he was put in the church for a wake and the people came all night long and then he was buried the next day with a full church uh, the people very much mourning uh, the loss of him he was uh, so well known that the newspaper the secular newspapers was uh, even printing accounts of uh, blessed Silos's health as he declined, and uh, the people were uh, very much moved by the way he died and the way he served the people and and took on the same situation that they had. 
And Blessed Silo spoke a lot of different languages. Was there a German community down in New Orleans, or did he speak French, or, or how did he use his language down in New Orleans? Well, it, when the, the Redemptors had a church called St. Alphonsus, and St. Alphonsus is still existing, and it's a very large church, and uh, that was for the English-speaking, the Irish primarily, and other, other English-speaking people in the neighborhood. Across the street was another huge church that was called St. Mary's Assumption. That was for the German-speaking. And then down the, down the piece was another uh, church called Notre Dame, which was for the French-speaking church, uh, people. Blessed Silos was in charge of the German-speaking church because he spoke German, but he also served at times in the other two churches and was able to get by very well in English and in French so that he could do his uh, fair share in those parishes also, since they were all served by the same uh, local community of Redemptorists. Blessed Silos was beatified in Dalton, and his cause has been ongoing ever since. Uh, could you give us an update on where his canonization cause stands? Immediately after his death, people were very interested in saying there's something very special about this, this person. So they started gathering all the information they could the letters and everything else that he wrote. They uh, took testimonies, etc. And uh, eventually uh, they were able to have him declared that he lived a heroic virtue and therefore his cause can continue on. But for some reason or another, probably because of the situation in the world at that time, uh, his cause just kind of rested for many years. And... Uh, then eventually it, it reemerged and people began to uh, to uh, understand the goodness of Blessed Silos. All the time, throughout that time, even though there was nothing official going on, the people continued to pray for his intercession and their needs and, and poured into the church, especially to his tomb, and, and prayed there and asked for his intercession. And then uh, finally there was enough gathered that there was a, a miracle approved by Rome, which was what was necessary for him to be beatified. That's when he became Blessed Silos. And now, in order to become St. Francis Silos, he has to have another miracle proven by the church. Uh, we have pilgrims coming constantly to the shrine, and many and many of them report marvelous things. But to prove a miracle is very difficult. And uh, we are in the process of of a, a miracle that we, well, we can't call it a miracle, only Rome can call it a miracle. An un, unexplained happening that uh, concerns a, a little boy who was quickly healed at the moment of birth when he had all kinds of troubles, and uh, we are going to be submitting that that possible uh, miracle to Rome, and they'll have to study it and decide it. If they say it was a miracle, then he would be canonized the same. There was a, a lot of excitement here in the archdiocese a few years ago because the parishioner of St. Mary in Annapolis, Mary Ellen Heibel, who um, she had cancer throughout her body that just disappeared, and, and it disappeared after she had said, uh, begun saying the novena to Blessed Silos. So there was a lot of optimism that maybe that that could be a, a miracle, but then she wound up dying a few years after that happened from, from unrelated causes, so the Vatican declined to hear it, but... Um, a lot of people still think that that was a miracle here, and I'm sure you've got lots of those cases as well. Where it's not an official miracle, but a lot of people still feel like they've been, been have had that intercession through Blessed Silas. 
Exactly. We have many, many, as I say, pilgrims coming to the shrine, and many report that same uh, experience. I know that that particular case was a was a great disappointment to those who uh, work in the uh, shrine and the and the, re- the welcome center that we have here, because it did certainly look like uh, it appeared to be a miracle, and then when it wasn't heard, it was very, very, very disappointing. But what can you do? <laughs> right. <laughs> What what have you learned about Blessed Silos in in writing this book? I think what I've learned is that he's he's just a uh, you know he never had uh, something where he was uh, a healer. He did have certain healings that were attributed to him, yes, but he was not like somebody who just went around healing. He was not a person who was the great orator and everyone came to hear him. He was not the one who founded a religious congregation or anything like that. He was just a real good, solid citizen. And uh, that's what I find uh, most attractive about him because all of us can imitate him in that, you know. Uh, I think it was of St. John Newman that the the Pope said, uh, or somebody said that he did the ordinary extraordinarily well. And I think that same kind of attribute could be applied to a blessed Silas. And that's what I find very attractive. Well, Father Richard Baver, author of Zealous Missionary, From the Perspective of Blessed Francis Xavier Silas. Thanks again for being here on Catholic Review Radio. Thank you for having me. For Catholic Review Radio, I'm George Matisek. Thanks for listening. You're probably not getting much church news in your daily newspaper or on your local TV station. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. There are so many ways to stay in touch with the Catholic Review. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Catholic Review Media will inspire, teach, inform, and engage you wherever your faith takes you. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.